Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature in Society and History as a freely available podcast. I am your indomitable host, Rogan, here with my... I don't know, are you indomitable, T.A. Rowan? I don't know what that word means. Indomitable. Nothing can beat you or put you down. No, I just exist. You just exist. You also speak away from the mic. <laughs> Try that again. Try it again. Try it again. One more time. Okay. There we go. That's what we like to hear. Um, now, people have noticed I've missed some podcasts. It, it's been a crappy summer, folks. I mean, summer is supposed to be the time that I, as a college professor recharge so that I can impart wisdom upon my students um, and frankly not put up with them for a few months you know uh, I, I mean I did not take this job because I wanted to deal with real life this is supposed to be my time for applying for grants to continue avoiding responsibility as an adult and stay in college mm-hmm. so you know the fact that reality has kind of descended on me this summer and dick punched me repeatedly has, uh, you know, like I'm the extra in a Stephen Chow movie, has not been fun. You know, I feel like I'm the extra guy brought into a sequel for Kung Fu Hustle named Steel Balls. And they're like, well, let's see if he can take this. And then just the rest of the movie has, you know, shutbacks, uh, callbacks to me laying on the floor crying. You know, that's what this summer has felt like to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord. But summer is nearly over. We're approaching uh, what's called Labor Day here in the U.S. Um, time for cons to have their last big hurrah of the year and spread more plague among their attendees. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, while I stay in my office. Although the plague even got me here in the office. You know what else I have in the office? What? Netflix. Mm-hmm. Now, I, this may surprise people, but I did not actually return to doing Sandman. Um, I've taught Sandman in other classes. I was not doing this because the Netflix series was coming out. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I had no particular interest in the Netflix series. You know, people go gaga uh, when the Sand... when adaptations of things they love come out. And I'm the person who's like, but I have the thing I love. Why do I care about a new version of it? Because people want more content. But that's... the thing they love. It's some sort of OCD-like, you know, collecting thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't feel that way towards stories. I just want to enjoy stories. I don't have a need to collect them. It's not... Enjoying a story is not part of my identity. You know, people become like this. I'm a Sandman fan. Yeah, well, I touch grass. So, you know, that's nice. Um <laughs> I don't, fandom of a thing is not a personality defining thing for me. Mm. So I don't understand that. Now, but I do like Sandman. I, I enjoy Neil Gaiman Sandman a lot. Uh, I've met Neil Gaiman. I've talked to him about Sandman. Uh, by the way, Neil Gaiman, very pleasant person. You know, he and I aren't good friends or anything, but, you know, we've met at events. And, uh, uh, you know, I feel a certain level of kinship towards him because he and I both grew up loving a lot of the same science fiction and comics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're certainly not unique in that. I mean, there's probably millions of you know people in our age bracket in the world that have, but there's still a sort of kinship there, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, well, probably not millions because companies that have you know published reprints of this older stuff have gone out of business. So they weren't selling millions, <laughs> maybe thousands. Uh, but I don't know, nor- and I'm not normally interested in talking about adaptations because. Uh, you know, why not just talk about the original? Adaptations usually fall in one of two categories. They're so faithful that there's no point in talking about it separately. Mm-hmm. Or they're so divergent that they end up being uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, sometimes they are interesting as an entirely separate work, but not as an adaptation anymore, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? All right. So, why would I be interested in Sandman and why do I bring up Netflix? Well, the Netflix series is out. Uh, It's 11 episodes. It's bingeable. And it is is very much an adaptation. It is not a whole new original work. And I would say that if you have read Sandman and you love it, you do not need to see the TV series. However, I do still recommend seeing the TV series. There is virtue in it. Now, this is not like, say, the Avengers movies. You know, I don't normally talk about the Avengers movies except in relationship to the comics a little bit because, I mean, frankly, the stories in the movies aren't all that deep. I mean, the whole plot line for Endgame was about as deep as, you know, a Tory's ethics manual. You know, it's just not something to talk about. But there is more here, I think. And what there is to talk about isn't just where it differs, but in the the nexus of where it's different and the same. And that is my way of saying that I think the Sandman TV series is actually kind of a masterclass in how to stay faithful to an original as an adaptation, but a Adapt it for a new medium. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure that Gaiman did enough. And, and let me say, Gaiman is also the lead writer of the TV adaptation, or at least a writer. I mean, consultant had a lot of input. Uh, it was very clear the production crew wanted his approval and wanted to do something faithful to the comics. Uh, because you don't end up with something this faithful without, you know, agreement among the parties. And... It, it is an interesting adaptation because it is so close to the original. It changes for the medium. Is it enough to really give a new experience to people who've already read the comics? I don't think so. But I don't think that was their goal per se. I think they were okay with the idea that people who already knew the comics would just enjoy seeing it on the screen in a new way, which I have. And that by adapting it for the medium, it would be accessible and make sense to people who would never read the comics, Mm -hmm. which I think they've done. So if someone's critical of it because it's not giving a whole new experience for people who know the original, I just don't think that was their goal. Nor do I think it necessarily should have been. I think the two goals I stated were quite reasonable. Make it enjoyable for people who basically know what's coming with a few surprises and make it accessible to people who wouldn't read it anyway. So today what I want to do is, first, I want to go over the second issue of the series. And I promised people in advance, 
my run through Sandman is not going to be one issue at a time. Just at the very beginning, there's a lot of ancillary material to talk about. And then I want to talk about the first two episodes of the Netflix series and how that series is being structured. And for context, let's talk about Preludes and Nocturnes versus the TV series. I don't think Sandman, the TV series, is going to have another season. I think this is a complete one-and-done thing. And it's 11 episodes long. I contrast that with Preludes and Nocturnes, which is the first story arc for the Sandman comic book series, which was eight issues long. Now, within that, it began with introduction of the character. Now, let, let's paint a picture here for people that's going to become important as we talk about Sandman. Sandman was written by a comic book fan for comic book fans. It was being sold in the direct market of specialized comic book shops. This was written by people who know obscure comic book references. For people who know obscure comic book references. Mm -hmm. The TV show is not, though. The TV show is made for a mass audience. But, of course, one of the things that's interesting is this is not the first time Gaiman's had to deal with this. Because during the course of writing Sandman and it being published, it attracted new readers who were not traditional comic book readers. So even in the publication of Sandman the series, comic book series, we see references to a wider DC universe and superheroes gradually get fewer and fewer and fewer the further in the series we get. Mm -hmm. uh, indeed, in Preludes and Nocturnes, the first story arc, which when he started it, probably had no confidence he'd ever get to publish more than that one story arc. And in fact, it ended when he said it was over, eventually, because DC would have been glad to keep publishing it forever. Uh, or at least until sales went down. But in Preludes and Nocturnes, we see lots of superheroes, actually, and references to the superhero universe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we get reference... We'll, we'll talk about those references when we run into them. In contrast, the TV series is 11 episodes long, and wraps up Preludes and Nocturnes in six of them. Uh, condensing some of the material, especially dealing with John D. Uh, or, for those who want the comic book, nom de jure, Dr. Destiny. Which I doubt will ever be used in the show. Although I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they make some references to the skeletal face or throw Destiny in there somewhere. Um, but we'll get to that as we talk about the show more. That's such in a the silly comics. name. Well, I mean, he was a character from the 70s. Uh, a Justice League opponent. What? I mean, he was a classic supervillain that Gaiman re-brought into this whole new role. Was anything in the comic 70s serious? No, not at all. That explains no. it. I mean, keep in mind, this idea that comics could be written for adults was entirely an idea of the 80s. Well, no, that's not entirely true. There were comics written for adults in the 60s and 70s, but they were by small independent presses. Mm -hmm. And they were generally seen as a very small niche thing. Mm -hmm. and, but in the late 70s, uh, as the drugstore model, the spinner rack model of comics collapsed and disappeared, which is where they saw a lot of their money as... Uh, and so DC and Marvel weren't going to do anything where they couldn't get it, make as much money as possible. Uh, but they left the spinner racks, which had to be kid-friendly. Nothing was going to be carried that wasn't kid-friendly. 
little kid friendly and they moved to the direct market that changed everything now comics didn't have to be for little kids anymore and they started getting information from the direct market stores that they never had from the drug stores and grocery stores that carried the spinner racks. And that included demographics, who was actually buying the comics. And they found out it was overwhelmingly adult men. Mm-hmm. And that opened up for a certain person at DC named Jeanette Kahn, who we've talked about before, to say, we can explore with stories. We can sell stuff in the direct market that was impossible in the old spinner rack model. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be for kids. So no, there there were not mainstream, you know, by the big two books that were for adults before the 80s. That is, you know, a relatively recent uh, aspect of the comics industry. Mm. And, and it's a fascinating thing from a publishing standpoint. I mean, imagine if books or magazines had been marketed only to children and only after 40, 50 years began being made for adults. I can't think of any other publishing medium that has had that kind of change. It's interesting, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about the first two issues of the comic. We already went through what happened in issue one. Then we're going to talk, now we're going to go through issue two. And then we're going to talk about how the TV series is different and how what they do in 11 episodes is different from the eight of here. And I'm going to go ahead and say, part of it is because it's a greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Preludes and Nocturnes, the first story arc, eight issues of Sandman, was written to be self-contained and be at an ending point, where if it wasn't published beyond that, it could just be dropped and walked away from. And, but there were things that happened later that were became very popular, parts mm-hmm. of the mythology. Uh, the Corinthian was the favorite bad guy. P- he People loved the Corinthian when he was introduced. They loved to hate him, loved to be afraid of him. And in fact, he became a major star in other Sandman-related works not written by Neil Gaiman because of his popularity. The Doll's House storyline became huge. I mean, it had things like a drag queen who was relatable and not a stereotype, mm-hmm. which was radical for some people when it was published. You know, things like that. And so what we, what I see when I look at this 11-episode structure of the TV series is that Gaiman has taken Preludes and Nocturnes, simplified it, shortened some of the material, and made room to put in some very popular things from later in Sandman and work it all together so that people can get a solid, full experience of the Sandman story and mythology uh, at least through Doll's House, in this one series, although heavily condensed mm-hmm. and uh, uh, expedited. Expedi- exped- I almost expedite? said expedited. No, it's not expedited. Expedited. Uh, selectively chosen. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about issue two. So in issue two, uh, we pick up after Morpheus had been leaving Alex Burgess's house after cursing him with eternal sleep, right? Mm-hmm. And we open an issue two, still with Sam Keysart, on this house that looks like it's in the middle of a swamp. And inside are these two characters with wild hair. And I'm going to read the dialogue, because I, I just, I love this dialogue. 
Don't be a moronic lump of blubbering, quaking, pathetic lard. Open the box, unwrap it. But it isn't my birthday. Of course it isn't your birthday, powder brain. You don't have a birthday. Uh, do I? Don't, do I? Uh, look, look, you promise it's not going to explode. <laughs> promise? Now, why would I give you an exploding present? What kind of brother would I be if I did that? Uh, my kind of brother? Uh, the kind who kills me whenever he's mad at me or bored or just in a lousy m mood? Eh, <laughs> Let's let those fraternal, fraternal bygones be, hey, Pudgy. Now, just open the blasted present. What was that? Bonk, bonk, bonk. I, uh, think of someone at the door. Well, something at the door anyway. So they go to the door, and this gives you an idea for their character. And these are Cain and Abel. Mm. Now, for those familiar with Christian mythology, Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve. Uh, the first brothers, and also the first murderer and the first victim. Both of them offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord says that uh, Abel's is better, even though he only offered plants, while Cain offered up a you know, valuable sheep. And Cain, out of jealousy, murders Abel. Mm -hmm. And this story has been used for the origin of all kinds of stuff in popular culture. I mean... The Vampire Masquerade RPGs uh, proposition Cain as the first vampire when he's cast out of Eden and to nod the land east of Eden and has a mark put upon him to, and all this kind of stuff. Interestingly, by the way, Cain and Abel are closely related to very old Jewish words, Hebrew words, related to agriculture and city building. And many people believe, and I find this plausible, that the actual story of Cain and Abel is the story of agricultural people versus urban people, mm. which I think is very plausible. So anyway, they open the door here, and they find the gargoyle, Gregory, literally picking up and carrying Morpheus into the house. Now, a little more context on these characters. Cain was originally introduced in 1968 by DC Comics, when they decided to do anthologies of weird and horror comics. These were kind of pioneered by a company called EC, but EC has its own complicated history. Suffice it to say, they disappeared, and DC was like, we can help fill this space. And they did. And it was successful, and Kane ran the House of Mysteries. Welcome, dear readers, to the... I don't know why I sound like Bela Lugosi suddenly. It just seems natural. Welcome, dear readers, to the House of Mysteries. I have another twisted tale for you tonight. You know, that kind of thing. And he had a pet gargoyle, Gregory, here. And it was popular enough that they later introduced a series called House of Secrets, starring his brother Abel, with the idea that they lived near each other and they had interaction between the two series. Um... And this shtick continued off and on. There were iterations. Uh, by the way, House of Mysteries was not the original series. Uh, Kane was introduced to. It had a different title, but that doesn't matter right now. So these were their stories. And they certainly weren't alone. For example, one of my favorite uh, uh, characters from 70s DC horror was the Phantom Stranger, who had his own series. And uh, there were a number of anthology titles uh, that came and went in popularity. The anthology titles are not popular anymore, unfortunately. 
So here they're positing that this house of mysteries and house of secrets take place in the dreaming. This will not be the last time by any stretch of the imagination that we see Neil Gaiman call out to those 70s horror comics. Mm-hmm. They, they are a pivotal part of what he is giving homage to in The Sandman. But we do for the first time find out that this weirdly mysterious place that the House of Mysteries and Secrets are is in the dreaming and that the first victim and the first murderer are in fact not actual dreams themselves. We find out later they came from somewhere even more primordial, but that Morpheus gave them letters uh, enabling them to stay in the dreaming and making them citizens of the dreaming, acting as symbols and agents. And as he's now very weak from his travels, he takes those letters back and destroys them, absorbing their essence to give himself a little bit of strength. Then we see Ethel D, this old, decrepit woman who is at the Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane. Uh. Now, of course, anybody who's watched, you know, any Joker movies or stuff with Batman probably knows Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. Again, this Where- is all taking place in the DC superhero universe. Where it feels like half of the population is. Right. Now, Ethel D is now taken down to see her son, John D., who can't dream anymore and has gone insane. And he's down in the basement. And look at this art for him. It's beautiful. I mean, it's grotesque. Right. It's beautifully grotesque. And he's obviously suffering. Now, this is him after the events of him fighting the Justice League, uh, presumably years and years ago. In terms of the real world and the distance between the publishing of the stories, it's been decades, but probably not that long in the universe. Time is very fungible in comic book universes, where Spider-Man's like 70 years old, but still needs to be a teenager, or, or at least early 20s, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so what happened was, he in the, in the DC comic stories, Dr. Destiny, John D., got a dream ruby from somewhere and manipulated it to make dreams come true and try to take over the world and be a supervillain. Now, of course, they never really explain the origin of this gem, and that's what we now are brought to understand was the ruby taken from Morpheus when Roderick Burgess imprisoned him. Mm-hmm. He took a helm, a pouch of sand, and a ruby. So these are the things that Morpheus must recover. And we now see him approaching the gates. Now... A discussion of the history of Morpheus and Somnus and all that in Greek mythology is interesting, but suffice it to say, there were origin, there were early Greek legends about dreams and how they worked and how that related to Somnus, the god of sleep and all that, uh, but this was largely recast in people's minds by an epic work by a Greek author named Ovid called the Metamorphos. And the Metamorphos uh, introduced a lot of ideas, including the idea of Morpheus as a god uh, and the thousand brood of Somnus as gods rather than these oniric spirits that they originally were. And just for the, this is actually a fascinating bit of cultural difference that I always find interesting. You know, we in the modern world think of dreams as important. I mean, Somnus, the god of sleep, what? 
He's the god of resting? Doesn't seem very important, does it? Mm -hmm. But that's because of how we think of the difference between sleep and dreams. We think of dreams as this very mystical, amazing, wild thing we don't really understand that just happens to happen while we sleep. But to the Greeks, they saw sleep as the transference to another reality. So Somnus, the god of sleep, was important, and dreams were just an aspect of him. Mm-hmm. So there's not much talk about the gods of dreams. Now notice I say gods, plural. Morpheus was not the god of dreams. Mm-hmm. He was one of a thousand gods of dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, of which, in, in the Metamorphose, three of them are named. But they didn't think of them as this bizarre mystical realm. They thought of the gods of dreams as very minor gods who literally put on plays for people when they slept. Mm. So Morpheus was seen as an actor. And his particular role was taking on the role of people. Mm-hmm. But there were... The other two that Ovid names, one of them takes on the place of inanimate objects and one of animals. So, in Greek mythology, Morpheus couldn't control all of dreams, just pretend to be people in your dreams. That's amusing. And there were a thousand of these gods. Mm-hmm. Presumably among the other 997 were, you know, minor dream gods who became waterfalls. And, you know, the sound of music or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, I I find that interesting that we make these assumptions. So Morpheus was not a major god. But one of the things mentioned is the gates of horn and ivory, uh, guarded by these two powerful creatures. And we see it here in Sam Keith's art as Morpheus is approaching his palace. And you see this in the TV show too. Now, supposedly these gates represent truth and lies because dreams can have both. And why are they made from horn and ivory? Because the Greek words are wordplay for the Greek words for truth and deceit. Or at least fulfillment, happiness, and despair. You know, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people are looking for great mystical meaning behind these. It was wordplay from a poet. So here, upon entering his realm, he runs into Lucian. And Lucian is just hanging around and not looking too dapper at the moment. And Morpheus's castle is, and I'm going to use a technical term here, fucked up beyond all hope. It looks so broken. It does. And back with Cain and Abel, we find out that the present Cain was giving Abel was an egg which hatches into a golden gargoyle. One of Cain's rare moments of being nice. Mm. And then murders his brother again. Who, of course, will later rise again. And Cain is a jerk. Yeah, well, obviously. So Morpheus is talking to Lucian. And Morpheus admits that he needs power. He has taken a lot of his essence and put it into his tools to make them easier to channel his power. Mm -hmm. The pouch, the uh, helm, and the ruby. And this is something that they take great effort in the comic book series to restress. And they do less so, but they do still mention in the TV series, that there is no actual distinction between the realm and the entity of Morpheus. 
he is a personification of the realm. And this is a story being told to us in a way that we can understand. Mm -hmm. Not that they ever are actually humanoids or anything like that. So Morpheus pulls from the dreams of people, the elements, to summon the three as one and the one who are three. The Hecate, the fates. Mm -hmm. And he pulls a crossroads from a Mongolian farmer. He pulls a, a, a hanged man from a Japanese cinephile, and so on and so forth. This is actually done really brilliantly in the TV show, and almost exactly one for one. And then the three fates are summoned, and they, of course, give him three answers, cryptically, about what happened to his stuff. Not enough for him to go get it directly, but at least get on the trail for each one. And... They and, and here, as we go through it, we see when he asks about the pouch, he's told the last person to have it was John to buy it was John Constantine, who of course is well known from the comic Hellblazer. Uh, and when Sandman was so popular, they decided to create the Vertigo imprint. Hellblazer and Swamp Thing were the two other titles immediately retconned into this Vertigo, you know, imprint. Mm. The second one we're just told was the helm was traded to a demon. And the third one, we're told that he needs to... Uh, uh, okay, I'll just read what Atropos says, the, the old crone of the fates. Your gym passed through a mother to a son who tapped its dream magics for his own ends until it and his dreams were taken away from him by the superhumans. Ask the League of Justice about its present whereabouts. And we see... Green Lantern and Batman arresting Dr. Destiny and taking the ruby. Mm -hmm. So, again, they were not hiding a connection to a DC world. Uh, uh, Neil Gaiman was hired to make comics in a superhero world. His, own, his work for DC previous to this was kind of relaunching Black Orchid, who was one of those 70s anthology characters, in Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. There was no idea this would be set out in a different world. Now, with that said, you are not going to find any of these connection points in the TV series. And in fact, later on, uh, Morpheus says he before he goes after the ruby, which is why he puts it last, he needs to learn more about these superhumans. Because the rise of superhumans happened while he was imprisoned by Burgess. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't know much about them. And... There's a lot of little interaction here that I'm not going to go into a whole lot uh, with the fates, but the fates end up long-term being very important. Not in a way that will become apparent in the TV show, but apparent in the long, long run as we hit the final story arc of Sandman more than 50 issues later. Um, so, that's it. I mean, what we've had in the first two issues is a very classical structure. The character of Morpheus is introduced and we don't know much about him. Through people around him, we find out how little is known about who and what he is, uh, but that there is some sort of mystic tradition there they know something about. Uh, that there are the Endless, that he's described as the little sister of death, or sorry, that he's the little brother of death. He refers to death as his older sister when he talks to Alex Burgess. Mm-hmm. We find out that he needs to recover 
the helm, the ruby, and the pouch, because without them he cannot restore his strength and restore his realm, which will be dangerous for all creatures. Mm-hmm. Because he is an aspect of reality itself. Mm-hmm. So the stakes are high, we get a sense of his personality, we have the events that create the problem in the first issue, and then we have the setup for the conflict of the first story arc set up in this issue, which is the recovery of everything. Mm-hmm. And then not stated, but will be a surprise, is The Sound of Her Wings, the final issue of the series, where the conflict is resolved, now something else has to be resolved. And we'll get to that when we get to it. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk through the TV show a little bit. The first thing I want to dismiss is the people pissed about gender swapping and stuff. Oh, God. Race swapping and gender swapping specifically have been the complaints. Okay. First things first. One of the complaints was Lucien became Lucien. A white man became a black woman. It doesn't feckin' matter. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's why it doesn't matter. So there are, when you talk about changing characters, there are a few things you have to talk about, in my opinion. One is, is the character isolated to the story? And this will become a criteria important when we talk about Constantine, because there were major changes to Constantine, too. And that will come up when we talk about episode three of the TV series and issue three of the comic book. But... And Constantine exists outside Sandman. So there's a whole other set of factors there. But Lucian only exists really in the continuity of Sandman stories. Yes, there have been series not written by Neil Gaiman, like The Dreaming, and Lucian would show up in them. But still, that's this one sort of continuity, this one collection of tales. And in these, Lucian's role is that he's intelligent, He's a librarian, which means he does most of the real work in the dreaming. (laughs) And is the real victim of all the bullshit that happens. Not that you're biased for librarians. Not at all. And and, and let me note that while everyone else fucked off, he's the one that remained loyal and was still there when Morpheus returned. Mm -hmm. And doing his best to keep shit together. Hasn't been paid in 90 fucking years or something. (laughs) But still doing the job of keeping society together, like a librarian does. Just saying. But he's intelligent, he's a librarian, he's loyal, he's steadfast. And none of those changed in the TV show. So the fact that it's a woman and she's black are irrelevant. The only reason you're mad is because you don't want a main character who's a black woman. Right. It, it, the character fills the same role, has the same personality attributes is snarky to Morpheus, sometimes disobeys him when it's for his own good. Um, And, yeah. So, it's a black woman now. We have a little bit more varied representation. It's all good. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And some people were upset at the Kincaids becoming black. They will become important as we talk about uh, the storylines past Preludes and Nocturnes, that are worked into the TV series. Now, I admit there weren't a lot of wealthy black British families in the early 20th century, but there certainly were some. Mm -hmm. And race is just not important to that family's function in the story. 
Mm-hmm. So I just don't see it as important. I'm just saying, people don't care about historical accuracy until it comes to including black people. And then it's a, oh no, but black people weren't rich back then. Yeah, and personal perception can vary in this too. I mean, I know, I mean, I'm perhaps more affected by that historical angle because I really like history. Mm -hmm. And when something clearly does not match the history of the time, it takes me out of the story. But that's not necessarily an issue for everybody, especially if they're not familiar with historical context. I mean, I certainly run into that. I mean, I've read stories set in parts of the world that I don't know the history well, and I may have read things that were completely wrong, but it didn't bother me because I didn't know the history. Mm. Uh, You know, you and I have had this discussion about Superman, Mm -hmm. the classic Superman being black. Well... The classic time period for Superman from Kansas, there just frankly weren't black people in Kansas. I mean, I knew people from Kansas in that time period who literally had never seen a black person in person until they moved to a different part of the country. And I just don't think that matters as much as America's changing and it's diversing. Well, and that's a time period change, too. Because to me, Superman is a fragment of the 1940s. And to me, he's there as a creature of the 40s. But I'm also not that far removed from the 40s in my own lifetime. You're much further removed, and the country has become more diverse in more regions than it was back then. So I can understand why it would not bother you and others of your generation in a way that it would bother me. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And also, I just don't think superhero comics need to be believable. He's, like we've mentioned Spider-Man. Spider-Man's been around for like 70 years, and in a lot of comics, he's still 15. But there's a difference between what's needed for the internal logic of a book and what's needed for grounding with a reader. And I just don't think his race matters for the grounding. And I can understand that viewpoint, and I don't think you're wrong, but we come from different personal backgrounds in that Mm -hmm. way that inform what feels right or wrong to us. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, I know people who use the same same logic to argue for Batman can't be black, but in fact, Gotham is supposed to be a stand-in for Baltimore, and Baltimore historically has a number of wealthy, uh, important-to-the-city black families, Mm -hmm. so I could easily imagine a Wayne family being black in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So that does not trigger that same feeling for me. For me... What Bruce Wayne has to be is that modern nobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so long as the Wayne family fills that role, and, and his father filled the role that Thomas Wayne did, and Bruce Wayne inherits it, it works. For me, Superman has to be, and this is one of my problems with the Superman here in the time period, Superman has to be the son of a farmer. Mm-hmm. He must be. Mm-hmm. I will not accept an alternative argument there. He is the salt of the earth. He's the classic ideal of the homegrown all-American boy. Mm -hmm. And one of my problems is that by the time that African-Americans began moving into Kansas, you didn't have much in the way of home farms anymore. It was major, major industrial agriculture. But again, most people who read comics don't think about these things in the Mm -hmm. way I do. I would never think about that. But it comes immediately to my mind. So, with that said, I sus- if I viewed the world and these details the way that most people do, 
I would not have an objection to Superman being black. It is contextual because I have a different set of experiences and expectations of that place in history. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is kind of going, you know, a little bit afield from Sandman. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important when we talk about representation and why people complain about white, especially white male characters getting changed for representation, that it's often fine. Mm-hmm. And representation should exist. Every I have said this over and over and over and over again. I grew up with tons of straight white males to see as positive examples. Everybody of every color, every gender, every orientation, every religion should have that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. And if it means taking the unsung hero of Sandman, the librarian, <laughs> and making him a her uh, and turning a honky into a black woman then that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, Morpheus is kind of an emo little bitch at times. Might need a good, strong black woman's hand to keep him in line. <laughs> um, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, th- there were two major, in the first episode of Sandman, two major changes. One thematic and one plot-wise. The mm-hmm. plot-wise change is that the Corinthian got involved introduced and becomes involved in informing the Burgesses about who Morpheus is. And he continues that role as a background antagonist in the sec in the uh, uh, second episode. So the Corinthian is a major mover behind the scenes here of trying to prevent Morpheus from surviving. In fact, he wants to kill Morpheus mm. and help others kill him. Now, The Corinthian originally did not appear in all of Preludes and Nocturnes. He wasn't introduced until later. He quickly became a fan favorite. And conflict between him and his creator, Morpheus, uh, was very much a central plot. Until he was destroyed and recreated. Sadly, I think this means we won't get to see in the TV series the serial uh, uh, convention. There was a serial convention in Georgia, by the way. Not... Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, C-E-R-E-A-L, like, you know, breakfast cereals. Uh But they were actually serial killers. It was a convention of serial killers. (laughs) That's amazing. And it was a fun issue. Uh Very dark humor. Very dark humor. Loved it. Uh, And then in episode two... Oh, so he's taken this fan favorite. He's removed the original plot. The original plot, by the way, the reason Morpheus was so tired and exhausted indirectly ties into the events of a doll's house, but we don't find that out until he wrote a a prelude series um, many years later after he finished the original series. So Mm -hmm. we didn't find out for decades uh, why Morpheus was in such a bad place that Burgess was able to trap him. Mm -hmm. So here they've completely removed all that. And remove the mystery, remove the long explanation that would be needed needed later to introduce the Corinthian as an antagonist. Mm -hmm. And just say that Morpheus is weaker in the waking world. Which I thought was an interesting choice. But the thematic choice that's different is where I think they decided to take a little bit of a rough edge off Morpheus. Now, in the book, as we discussed, what he did to Alex Burgess was brutal. Mm -hmm. Ever-waking nightmares. In the book, he's just put to sleep. 
I mean, sorry, in the TV show, he's just put to sleep. He's much kinder. Mm-hmm. So the character of Morpheus in the books, he's temperamental. He's sullen. He can be on top of the world when he's in love and then just ready to burn down all of creation when the romance fails. Mm-hmm. He has no sympathy for his enemies. He holds grudges for tens of thousands of years. Um, and we certainly see some of those traits with the TV Morpheus, but not quite as ugly. And I'll be very curious about when he goes to hell. I've watched most of the third episode at this point where there's a sort of romance reference made. Um, But we find out one of his original paramours, or at least human paramours, uh, when he goes to hell. And I wonder if they're going to keep that in. Mm. Now, in episode two, they did a few things out of order. They changed orders around. I don't think that's important to go over terribly. Uh... They introduce Cain and Abel, although one big difference this time is that instead of unmaking letters of commission, he has to unmake Gregory. Gregory the gargoyle who's the loved pet. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who's ever had to put down a pet, it's it kind of a stab. I mean, I teared up at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit home a little too hard for me. And... In the final line of the show, uh, someone says about Morpheus, you can't change him and you can't save him either. Which this idea of change and change leads to doom, which is ironic for the Lord of Shaping, uh, is a central theme of the series. Where he does have to change and it leads to his doom. Mm -hmm. And I'll be interested to see how much of that they continue thematically with a storyline that will not have the opportunity to extend like the comics did, Mm -hmm. which covered these themes in a great deal of depth. Okay, so we're a little bit past the 45-minute mark. Do you have any parting thoughts? When we started this, you said you didn't really know Sandman. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you have an interest in watching the Netflix series? Yeah, it sounds interesting. I think so. I'd be willing to watch it with you. Mm Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to cut it off here. We will be back on Thursday with an episode comparing things done well and things done poorly in comic storytelling from recent comics published. Ooh. All right. We'll talk to you then. Bye.